Welcome to the Legacy Nashville podcast. We are so grateful that you've taken the time out of your day or night to tune in. We pray that this message encourages you to love God, love people, and change the world. Now, let's get to the message. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to start by reading uh, verse 32, and then I'm going to read all the way through Acts chapter 5, verse 11. Are you cool with a lot of Scripture? Are you sure? All right, let's stand to our feet. We're going to read the Word of God out loud. As you're standing, before we read, I do want to reflect on the marks of a Book of Acts church that we've discovered so far. All right, let me show them to you real fast. We, for four months, have studied four chapters and we've come away with 12 marks. These are attributes of a book of Acts church. One through eight is here, absolute obedience to Jesus as the head of the church, Holy Spirit baptism, local unto global evangelism, God-ordained leadership, corporate encounter, Jesus-centered preaching, many salvations and baptisms, devotion to church fellowship. We're gonna see a number of these in the text today. Number nine is radical generosity. Number 10 is supernatural healing and miracles. Number 11 is the first mark that nobody wants, which is persecution. And then number 12 is persistent prevailing prayer. You got it? Acts 4 verse 32. Let's read together. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's that God-ordained leadership. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now I want you to watch what is happening here. In Acts chapter four, we see a stage being set so that we can become aware of the kind of culture that was active amongst the early church in the book of Acts. Now we're seeing the problem here in Acts 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought it only, brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, one of the things that some interpreters conclude is that Ananias and Sapphira committed suicide. Now, I think that the follow-up to his death proves that it's not suicide because I don't understand why great fear would come upon all who heard of his passing if he took his own life. It's obvious that something supernatural and divine has taken place in the midst of his 
his death. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And then Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. It's interesting that she falls down involuntarily at his feet whenever she could have voluntarily placed an offering at his feet. It's just interesting to me. Uh, Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and they buried her beside her husband and great fear once again came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. That's a mouthful. The title of the message today is simply this, God don't play. That's what I got for you. God don't play. God don't play. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for truth. Thank you that you said when we receive truth that we can be set free. And so today we ask you, God, for freedom in our mind. We ask that the chains of culture that have bound up our understanding would be released today by the powerful hand of God as you deposit into us the mind of Christ. We want to think like Jesus. And we ask today that you would transform us by a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of that man, Jesus. And the church said, amen. Amen Amen and amen. You can be seated. On your way to your seat, give somebody a high five. Tell them real quick. Say, God, don't play. God, don't play. I didn't really know what else to to title the message. I thought like, don't lie to the Holy Ghost. I thought maybe I thought about using um, that title. And then what title did you give me this morning? It was good though. It was a good workable title. I ended up staying with uh, God Don't Play because I thought it might be the best way to summarize this passage. But we read Acts chapter four to start. And one of the reasons why, you didn't want to tell me, did, did you? He knew, he knew what it was. He didn't want to say it. So in Acts chapter four, in Acts chapter four, what we see is we recognize the culture that has come about organically in the early church in the book of Acts. The reason I say organically is because I believe that much of the passage that we just read is more descriptive than it is prescriptive. And so what we're getting is we're getting story, we're getting narrative, we're getting history, we're getting background as to how the early church was functioning at this point in Acts chapter four. We do have some implications from God as to how he's commanded us to behave and function within the context of a covenant community. But I want you to understand that much of what we just read is a historical account of how the culture had been established in the early church. That's why I read Acts chapter 4. What I want you to understand today is that everyone, not because it was required, but because it was desired, everyone was participating in this culture of unity and generosity. That's Mark number 8 and Mark number 9 of our attributes of a book of Acts church. So I want you to see these bullet points to understand the context. Everyone in the church was in unity. Now, we could all collectively gasp and say, wow, 
Because supernatural unity of this sort is absolutely biblical. I don't know how often any of us could testify to feeling that we were so connected within the context of a community that we were willing, second bullet point, to abdicate our own possessions for the sake of the community to such an extent that everything that you own, you see as your brother also owning or your sister also owning. I mean, that is supernatural unity and generosity. The third bullet point there, and this is profound to me, is that everyone, the Bible says, you look at verse 34 and 35, everyone who owned property, be it houses or land, they sold their property and they brought the proceeds to the apostles to wisely steward and distribute to the needy. Notice there was a purpose in their generosity. It was not to fatten the bank accounts of the apostles. It was given to the apostles so that they could function as wise stewards so that they could abolish poverty in the midst of the community. Now, I think that's pretty fascinating. What about you? What if we did not tolerate poverty within the context of our covenant community? What if we said, there's no way we're going to allow any person that's a part of our tribe to live in a state lacking necessary resource? That's a pretty awesome covenant community, would you agree? Well, this is the culture of the early church. There was so much unity happening in the culture, not just by some of the saints, but the Bible clearly tells us everyone, notice in verse 32, it says the full number, and it even said no one said, no, it was everybody, they saw their belongings as uh, shared. It was everybody can participate and share in what I own, the family of God. Now, as I mentioned, God does not require this. That's why I say it's descriptive, not prescriptive. When you join our church, we don't take you through next steps class and then command you to sell your house and then bring all the money from the sale of your home and put it on the altar on a Sunday morning. Of course not, we don't do that. We don't require that. And God didn't require the apostles to teach that nor establish his early church in such a way that the economic structure of the organization resembled socialism where everybody was required to share everything. That wasn't the case. In fact, we never see that as the case in all of the epistles, all of the letters that the apostle Paul or Peter wrote to the New Testament church. You, you never see a time in which God's like, this is a requirement. Nobody's allowed to own anything. What we are seeing is the byproduct of a state of culture of supernatural unity and desired generosity. You have to understand that, all right? It was not forced. It was actually chosen by the community freely, all right? They wanted to share everything with everyone within the church community because they saw their spiritual family as just as serious as their natural family. There's a book by Hellerman called When the Church Was a Family. If you just want to have your mind blown about how the early church related to one another, you can read that. It's the reason why when we come in the house of God, we say, good morning, brother. You know, you give me like a good Baptist deacon handshake, like, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and it, I'll, know, I'll, I'll know we're, we're Baptists if you start sliding me a cinnamon disc. And if you do that, I'll, I welcome those type of deacons. 
good morning, brother. Good morning, sister. Right? You know, we do, we do that. That's because it's in our history, our spiritual ancestors. They saw one another as the relationship, the covenant was so serious. It was in the same way as a natural brother or a natural sister. Now, the results of this type of culture was that there was nobody that was needy. And you know what I find interesting is when somebody tells me, I think the church should give like an Acts church, but you don't want to give like an Acts saint. And that's confusing to me, but that's just a side point. This is the culture of the early church. This is what's happening. This was how the early church in Jerusalem initially operated. And how many of you guys know that culture rarely happens by accident? It can come about organically, but culture often is curated as a result of what you celebrate and what you tolerate. Now, I believe that the apostles were aware of the type of culture that was organically coming about in the early church, and so they chose to point to Barnabas and celebrate the testimony of his generosity as an exemplary member of the community. Now, this is what we do at Teen Church. Like, if you come on Wednesday night, which I want to encourage all of you guys to come on Wednesday night, we, we will point to people in our environment that are crushing it. We're like, this person here, they embody the desired spirit of this church family. And so we're going to present them and point to them. And we're going to say, if you want to know how we want to behave in this family, we're going to point to Barnabas. You see what I'm saying? Culture is curated as a result of what you celebrate or what you tolerate. And so I think Luke, like a really good teacher, he's giving us, the modern reader, an opportunity to actually compare and contrast. He's pointing, he's pointing to Barnabas and he's saying, good. Let's just give Barnabas a thumbs up. Good. Y'all help me preach this, all right? Good job, Barnabas. Yay, way to go. And then what he does is then, you know, just like a good preacher, right? Then he points to uh, Ananias and Sapphira and then, boo. Right? He's saying, this is the desired spirit of the community. This is good. This is anti-spiritual of what we're looking for out of this spiritual family. Don't do this. I think in some sense, Luke, like a good teacher, is giving us that opportunity. And one of the things that I noticed that he points to first is the attitude or the heart posture of Ananias and Sapphira. How many of you guys know that our attitudes lead us to our actions? So before we can even get into what Ananias and Sapphira choose to do through their actions, I think it's important that we look just for a little bit at what possibly could have been the heart posture or the attitude that they had. Now, I believe our church, you know, we have a good culture here and it's great to belong to a great culture, but sometimes in an effort to be seen and recognized, people may pretend to be what they are not in order to be accepted and celebrated in the culture they are a part of. I think that may have been Ananias and Sapphira's first temptation. They wanted to fit in so bad. They wanted to be liked, just like Barnabas. They wanted to be admired like some of the other leaders. They wanted to be celebrated as exemplary leaders in the community. There you also see competition and comparison. These are the things that shut down covenant community. I wanna be like Barnabas. I wanna be better than Barnabas. I'm gonna sell a bigger field. 
Tell me that stuff is not happening in the church in 2023. Come on. Right? Disrupting the type of community that God is knitting together. And when you see what behaviors get celebrated in a community that you want to belong to, it's very normal to follow suit and do your best to practice those behaviors yourself. And that's not always bad because it's one of the ways that healthy cultures create healthy standards. So it's good whenever you come into a community, you're like, okay, that's how, the, that's how we act in. Got it. And as long as that's healthy and it's holy, it's a good way that we can allow the culture that we're a part of to shine a light up on our heart and expose some unhealthy attitudes or actions. And then we have an invitation as a result of the spiritual family to repent and be transformed more into the image of God, right? So that's one of the benefits of church, but it's very dangerous and it's very bad when we start to do what Ananias and Sapphira did, which was to lie as much as needed for the sake of acceptance and celebration. They wanted notable status without genuine sacrifice. So they lied as often as they needed to. It's fine to want to fit in. We all want to do that. But when you start pretending to be what you're not in order to separate yourself from the crowd and feel special, you're not only being dishonest, you're doing the exact opposite of what you hope or what you want to happen Because here's what's going to happen. You may feel celebrated in moments for who you're not, but you'll never feel truly and deeply known for who you actually are. And community is a place where you're supposed to actually be known for who you actually are, not who you pretend to be when you put on your religious mask and come to church on Sunday morning. Listen, God does not anoint your mask. He anoints your head, who you actually are, right? So if you want to be known, don't lie to feel accepted or celebrated, right? Be honest. Ananias and Sapphira, they were deeply selfish, and their selfishness was exposed by the generous kingdom culture that they were a part of. A friend of mine, Jason Peaks, he said this, they neglected the fear of the Lord for the fame of the congregation. Tell me that doesn't happen. So here's some lessons from Ananias and Sapphira. Number one, don't lie. Listen, it's going to get heavier as we go along. Number one, uh, don't lie and pretend to be who you're not in order to be seen and celebrated by the community you're a part of. Choose to value your transformation more than your social status. One of the ways that you keep yourself from being transformed within the context of a church community is by pretending to be who you're not so that you can be accepted and celebrated by the culture you're a part of. That actually holds you back. The more you pretend, the more you lie, the more you postulate, the more you act like, yeah, that's me. I'm a, I'm a leader. I'm an example. All you're doing is holding yourself back from transformation. So, the, the, the action, so that's the attitude. The action they took then was to conceal their selfishness. They lied to do so. And eventually, of course, they lied to God. In verse 2 of Acts 5, it says, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now listen, Ananias and Sapphira were not required to sell their property, nor were they required once they sold it to then give 100% of the profits to the church. But as others were doing so, such as Barnabas, they wanted to be seen as generous too. They wanted to be seen as exemplary leaders themselves, so they sold a property and they lied about how much they sold it for. And then they pretended to give hundred percent of the profits to the church. We may not, you know, 
see this example so clearly, but how often within the context of church, you see somebody else do something, they get celebrated for you like, I'm going to one-up them. They sold their farm, I'm going to sell a bigger farm. They they gave an offering, I'm going to give a bigger offering. They serving kids every Sunday, I'm going to serving kids every Sunday, three services. Right? It's like the spirit of like one-up. It's like, I'm going to one-up the other person. You know, you, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's competition and comparison. It leads us to be deceptive so that we can fit in and be accepted. But if you're accepted for who you're, who you're not, you're never going to get the benefit of being a part of a community. So Pastor Robert Morris said this, pride wants people to think that I gave more than I really did. Or pride wants people to think I paid more than I really did. Man, that's a nice watch. Yep. Where'd you get that? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, sweetheart. I don't know if y'all seen that meme. But you see what I'm saying? That's pride. Where'd you get those shoes? Knowing good and well, you came up, you know, at the thrift shop, brand new, brand new out the box. I got these grails right here. Yeah, nobody wants to laugh. Everybody's like, yeah, no, I don't ever do that. Okay. Let me move on. Ananias and Sapphira, they were prideful. Rather than repent and change and join the kingdom culture they were surrounded by, they lied again and again to protect and project status within the community. Not only did they lie to their friends and their leaders, but they lied to God. And this is where it gets bad. Verse three, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? By taking a direct action to deceive the church community, God considers what they've done as an attempt to deceive him. Now, that's crazy that in this particular passage, passage, God conflates lying to the church as lying to his spirit. And that's not something that he takes very lightly. So here's a heavy point. Number two, don't lie and attempt to deceive God's church, the community, or the leadership because God hates lies and deception and considers lying to his church as lying to his spirit. That's a deep cut. Somebody said, say it again. <laughs> uh, well, how about this? Look at this scripture, Proverbs chapter six. There are six things that the Lord hates. If you're a guest here, it's not always like this, but there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, pride, a lying tongue, lies, hands that shed innocent blood, murder, a heart that devises wicked schemes, which is exactly what they did, and feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness, again, lies. You notice how much lying shows up in this? Like, if you want to know what God hates, yeah, he hates murder, but why does he list lying multiple times within the list that he says, here's what I hate? False witness who pours out lies, and a person, get this, who stirs up conflict in the community. God says he hates that. Ananias and Sapphira did all of these things except murder. This is serious. It's good for us to get a reminder when we read these passages, and this is why I, as your pastor, don't skip over them. No, no, because there's moments like this where we need to be reminded of of, of the severity of, of, of what we're a part of called the church of Jesus Christ in the earth that Jesus died to give us the privilege of belonging to. 
This is serious, which is why whenever the apostle Peter confronts Ananias, he doesn't say, you made a mistake. That would have been kind, right? No, what does he do? He actually exposes prophetically diagnosing Ananias and Sapphira's root issue. Their root issue was that Satan had filled their heart. Uh, Verse three, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, as believers, we are supposed to be full. As believers, we are supposed to be full by a spirit. You with me? As believers, we are supposed to be filled by God's spirit. God's spirit in us, when we're filled by his spirit, it produces the speaking and the preaching of God's word through our mouths. But if we are filled by Satan, then the enemy will produce the speaking of lies through our lips. This is why Jesus once told Peter, get behind me, Satan. It's not that Peter was possessed, but that he had succumbed to Satan's temptation in that moment to think and speak like the enemy. Being filled by God's spirit empowers us to speak the truth about God, but being filled by Satan causes people to lie to God. God wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Why would you have any problems believing that Satan wants to fill you with a demonic spirit? If you don't believe in demonic possession, I don't know how you believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but that's just me. Satan wants to fill people with demonic spirits. Why is that? Because he's an imitator and a counterfeiter. He knows that God wants to fill you. Therefore, he wants to do the same in an attempt to subversively take God's place on the throne of your heart. Listen, if you're going to have a book of Acts church, you're going to have to have a deliverance ministry. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was number one, succumbing to Satan's temptation, thereby opening the door to be filled by Satan. And then subsequently, number two, lying to the Holy Spirit. I know it's deep. Verse four, you ain't lied to man. You lied to God, bro. You think you're lying to me. You think you're just trying to deceive the church. You you think you're just trying to deceive the church community. You think you're just trying to deceive your pastors. Come on, man. This is serious, man. I don't know. I don't know a better way to say it. I'm just trying to just be vulnerable and be honest. Like, That's what he says. You have not lied to man, but to God. So let me lighten it up just a little bit. Point three. Don't be filled with demons. Be filled with the spirit. Be filled with the spirit. Get full of the spirit. You want to speak truth, think truth, know truth. Get filled with the Holy Ghost. Be filled with the spirit and submit yourself to God and resist the devil. What does the Bible say? And he will flee from you. You know what temptation sounds like? Your doorbell. What did God say to Cain? Sin is crouching at your door. So whenever temptation hits, it sounds like your doorbell. I don't know what your doorbell sounds like. Maybe it's a... Right? That's temptation. How many of you guys know, if somebody knocks on your door, you don't have to open it. But for some reason, 2023, we're like, oh, somebody's at the door. Temptation. <laughs> we we say yes to everything. We've stopped saying no to anything. It's like whenever No. I I didn't order a pizza. 
I don't recall ordering pornography. Nope. I didn't Uber Eats cheating on my wife. Kick rocks. I'm going to go back to prayer. You don't have to open the door, okay? You don't. We good. That's temptation. That's what temptation sounds like. That's what happened. Be filled with the Spirit. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. God don't play. Verse 5, verse 10. Here we see the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias heard the words, fell down, breathed his laugh. Immedi- uh, last. Immediately, Sapphira fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Now, I have done my research, all right? I spent more time preparing for this message than usual, all right? Because it's not the easiest passage to preach. And so one of the books that I have is by Dr. Craig Keener. He is, um, he's, a, he, he's a theologian at Asbury Theological Seminary. And um, I have his commentary on the book of Acts for this series. Shout out to my good friend, Will Hart, who sent it to me. It showed up at my door and it was, it was 25 pounds. It's one commentary. So I read a lot of that because I really wanted to get this one right. And one of the things that Dr. Craig said is that an audience in the early church would not have been as surprised by this miracle of judgment as we are today as modern readers. Reason being is because the early church expected God to judge his enemies and they took biblical statements like the wages of sin is death, not figuratively, but seriously. And why wouldn't they? Most of them are well aware of different occasions where miracles of judgment had taken place in Israel's history. Let me give you some. Uzzah was struck dead for touching the ark in 2 Samuel. The Korites were swallowed up by the earth for challenging Moses and breaking the peace of the community in number 16. Those who threatened Elijah died by fire from heaven in 2 Kings 1. Those who mocked Elijah were instantly mauled by bears in 2 Kings 5. That's the craziest story ever. I haven't preached on that yet, but I can't wait to. You know what I'm saying? It's like the, the, the pastor is, is on a walk and these little kids are mocking him for going bald and he curses them and she bears come out and maul 42 kids. That's crazy. Aaron's son died for offering str- strange fire. <laughs> I don't know. It's just there's something about him. I'm like, whoa. I'm like checking with the Lord in prayer. I'm like, I ain't got that kind of authority, right? <laughs> Many, many died miraculously during Moses' day for rebellion. That's Exodus 32, Numbers 14, Numbers 16, Numbers 21, Numbers 25. All right, through all of these experiences, God's message is abundantly clear. Do not profane what is holy. Don't treat the spirit with, don't be so casual. This is serious. God don't play. So, so did God take their lives? This is the question I'm sure you want to know. I believe he did. That's my interpretation. Yes, I do believe that he did. Keener calls this a judgment miracle. Um, I know a lot of people interpret this. Like I said, some people, really, really intelligent people, way smarter than me, interpret it as they committed suicide. I know some people, uh, theologians um, that I follow, they interpret it as uh, Peter abusing his apostolic authority and cursing them, and that's the reason that they died. Uh, But I don't believe that Peter cursed them personally. I believe that Peter prophesied, meaning he spoke out loud God's divine verdict for Ananias and Sapphira as a result of their lying to the Holy Spirit. That's what I personally believe. That's the way that I interpret it. And one of the reasons I interpret it this way is because of stories that I've heard real time. 
And I don't have time to get into those. But the question is, I know you're asking, what, dude, this is New Testament. Where's the grace? Well, in verse 4, it says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? This is Peter appealing to Ananias that he didn't have to do this. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Peter's making it clear to Ananias, we didn't force you to do anything. God didn't twist your arm and make you do this. Nobody is manipulating you. When Sapphira came in, he said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, so much. And he said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Peter even gave Sapphira an opportunity to come clean, but she persisted in her lies to the Holy Spirit and to Peter. And Peter says, why did you conspire to test God? Why did you guys do this? Why are you testing the spirit of God? Don't you know that the Holy Spirit is God? My friend, Nathan Finocchio, one of the things he says like, hey, this is the Holy Ghost taking authority in the new covenant context. Like, yeah, they know about God the Father. Yes, they know about God the Son, but the Holy Ghost is here and he's like, hey, I'm God. Don't play. So Galatians 6 says, don't be deceived. God is not going to be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap in return. God will test you, but you are not to test him unless he gives you permission to. And there's only one place in the scripture he does. Tithe and offering. Which conveniently, because um, worship went late, we're doing now. <laughs> Everybody's be like... I'm cutting up and turning my mic off. Maybe that was the Lord like, you're done. Um, okay, let me give you point four and I am done. Uh, don't test God, fear God. Meaning revere and respect God. If we want revival, we cannot come before a holy God so casually. As a result, the fear of the Lord came upon the entire community and that's where we're adding the 13th mark. I thought about it. I'm not adding marks every week just for the sake of adding marks, but I'm really thinking this through in such a way that I really want to look at the attributes that marked the book of Acts community so that we can prayerfully apply them to our church. If we're anything, I really want us to be a biblical church. So the, thir the, th the 13th mark is the fear of the Lord. And, you know, I, the best way I've ever heard it explained, John Bevere, he said, you know, in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord was being afraid of being close to God. In the New Testament, the fear of the Lord is being afraid of being away from God. I, I want to be next to God. Why? Because I'm completely dependent upon him, but I'm not flippant and I'm not casual. Jesus ain't just like my BFF, although he is that. He's also the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our God, our Savior, the Alpha, the Omega. He's a pretty big deal. And he deserves our respect and our reverence. We're not coming before him flippantly. We're coming boldly because we know we're accepted, but not on our merit. But on the blood of Christ, we come through reverently. I, I have a holy fear of you, Lord, because you're big and I'm small and you're holy and I'm sinful. And you can do when, what you want when you want because you're sovereign. So we got another service in three minutes, so we got to pray. You guys stand up. So here's the giving thing. Um, it's a weird time to ask for an offering, but... 
I don't know. I mean, maybe it just couldn't get any better. I don't know. But let me tell you what Peter told Ananias and Sapphira. You're not, you're not being manipulated into giving, by the way, or controlled or anything like that. If you want to give, give. If this is your home church, tithe. Tithing is not generosity. Tithing is obedience. Tithing is returning. God said the first 10% belongs to him, the first fruits, the first uh, firstborn, uh, the first animal. He's very clear and specific about that. Jesus even, um, even, even confirms, yes, you should tithe. That's what he said when asking the Pharisees about how they chose to tithe. So, Lord, we just say thank you for the offering today. And, um, Lord, we say thank you so much for convicting us. You know, conviction is different than getting triggered. I think sometimes you're like, I'm triggered. And so you run away from it. Maybe you're convicted. And maybe you need to lean into it. You know, if you're convicted about your giving today, let today be a day you right the wrong. You don't have to back pay God. He just he doesn't ask you to do that. I mean, he, he might, but I never encourage people to do that. Just repent and start anew. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everybody just say, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Give me a healthy fear of the Lord. Amen. The Legacy Nashville podcast. If you'd like to support the ministry, you can do so at legacynashville.org forward slash give. If you're listening on iTunes, log into the store and give us a good rating and review. This helps our podcast reach new people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Until next week, love God, love people, and go change the world.